You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and welcome to Episode 2 of the Crisis in the Church series, where we start to look at the background of the crisis. This week, we're speaking with Father Alexander Wiseman, who will start our exploration on the historical roots of what we're experiencing in the Church today. In this episode, we'll take a look at where this all started, with the philosophy of nominalism. Like many philosophical ideas, it can be confusing, but Father breaks it down into an easy-to-understand series of points. Afterwards, we'll look at the story of Martin Luther and how this nominalism greatly influenced his errors, leading to the Protestant Reformation. We're starting here, since these theories play a major role later in liberalism, modernism, and the destructive policies of the Second Vatican Council. If you want to see the previous two episodes of this series, please visit sspxpodcast.com. Now, here's Father Wiseman. All right, well, we are back with episode number two of the Crisis in the Church series on the SSPX podcast and on YouTube and Facebook and all the things. Uh, welcoming Father Alexander Wiseman. Hello, Father. How are you? Hello, Andrew. Uh, we are we are talking to you for the first time, and so for some of our viewers who may not have met you before or know who you are, uh, could you give a little bit of introduction as to uh, who's Father Wiseman? Certainly. So... I was ordained in 2013 in the seminary in Monona, Minnesota. And from there, my first assignment was in St. Mary's, Kansas, where I was stationed for four years. When I was in St. Mary's, I taught both in the college and in the academy there. And one of the classes I taught in the college was the theology class, which we're not gonna be talking directly today about some of those matters, but nevertheless, there are always connections. Sure. Uh, after my four years at St. Mary's, then I was transferred to the seminary, which is now located in Virginia. And there I've been for the last three years. And in the okay. seminary, currently I'm teaching both philosophy and theology. Okay. And so Father Franks, uh, he's the one who's uh, introduced this series to us. Uh, he's currently teaching at St. Mary's College. And I think he mentioned uh, you and Father McFarland, who we spoke with on the last episode, uh, and, and he, the three of you were kind of the three amigos in, in St. Mary's for a little while. Yeah, that's definitely the case. We, uh, we were kind of a team when we were there. I overlapped with, uh, Father Franks for just one year, but it was certainly great being able to teach alongside him in the college. Sure. Sure thing. Well, we, we spoke, like I mentioned, we spoke with Father McFarland on the last episode, diving into whether or not there is a crisis at all. And we talked about all the different, um, all the different signs, all the effects that, uh, that show that we are in a crisis uh, today. And so we're moving on with you today, Father, um, with this second episode. And, you know, when we first, Father Franks was, was first pitching this, he said, well, all right, episode two is going to be uh, kind of the causes of this crisis. And it's going to be uh, the origins, and it's going to be Luther, and it's going to be Kant. Uh, and then you and I started talking, you said, wait, way too much. We got to split this up. So what are we going to be talking about today, Father? Right, so today I want to look at kind of what we call the remote origins of the crisis. So some, we might say, systems of thought that have influenced men's thinking throughout the centuries and eventually, in some sense, give rise to the thought behind the crisis of today. And we're going to focus today, I think, on just two things. So First of all, a position which we call nominalism, and I'll explain what that is. 
And then we're going to look specifically at Luther, because I think without some understanding of Luther and the Protestant revolution that took place in Christendom, we can't really approach the difficulties of today. They're, they're too intimately connected. And that's, I think it's an important point also to say that, you know, this crisis didn't come about all of a sudden. It didn't just spring out of nowhere. It's, there, are, there are ideas here that are wrapped up that have appeared before. You know, as we read in, in scripture, there's nothing new under the sun. And so certain, certain ideas, certain events have, certain, have influenced men and are going to make up a part of this crisis as well. And we've, we mentioned that before when we did the introductory uh, episode with Father Franks. Um, you know, he, he said this is one of the big points that, that he would like to get across and, and all of us would like to get across. This isn't just something all of a sudden people woke up, Vatican II happened, and then things were bad. Uh, there, these things happened way beforehand, and that's what we're going to be talking about today, is this is, not, <clears throat> this is not anything new. It didn't just happen in 1962 or 1965 or what have you. Uh, these have been festering. This has been happening for a really long time, but there, but there has to be kind of some starting point. There has to be some place where we can trace the events of this current crisis back to. So in, in your mind, Father, as you're looking at this topic, where, where do we begin? So actually, that's a, it's a tricky question about, you know, where can we say really the beginning happened? And I think ultimately, obviously, we can, we can go all the way back to original sin in, in some respect. We know sure. that. But at least in terms of the thinking that greatly influences the crisis itself, and especially the errors of liberalism and modernism, in a certain sense, we can say the beginning was this uh, system of nominalism. And okay. so it introduced a, a real way of thinking about our thinking about how we understand the world. And that's going to definitely play a part or, or, or start a ball rolling, we might say, that's going to, be, that's going to pick up speed over the centuries. So we can probably... We can probably begin there with, with just nominalism. Maybe, though, just before we do that, I can, I can say something that, you know, at least nominalism and Luther, they're going to have in common. If, sure. if we were to kind of give a, a theme that's going on for these and then also the next uh, podcast that we'll do, you know, where we'll, where we'll address Kant, uh, if we had to give a theme for these ideas, we could probably say that... Um, each of these things that we're going to be looking at, nominalism, Luther's understanding, Kant's understanding of the world, they each in some way call into question uh, man's own understanding of what is outside of himself. So, okay. for example, if I, if I see a tree and I say, that's a tree, I could say, Yes, so outside of myself and distinct from myself, there really does exist a thing, and it really has this kind of nature, and I call that a tree. Or else I could say, on the other hand, well, I don't know what is outside of me. I have really no idea what's outside of me. But whatever it is, I call my impression of it a tree. And okay. if you want to call these two systems kind of objective truth and subjective truth, you can. I'm going to avoid the use of those terms for the sake of a bit more clarity. 
But okay. generally speaking, all these positions that we're going to examine, nominalism, Luther, eventually Kant, uh, they're all going to assert the latter statement in some way. That is, I don't really know what's outside me, but I give it a name. I give my impression of it a name. And I, I personally give it, give it a name. I'm not, I'm not getting someone else's impression from it. It's up to me to decide what to call that, basically. That's it. That's it. And so as soon as you say that, of course, you're going to say that knowing reality, knowing things is, is no longer a question, which is what we would say, a question of receiving something outside your mind into your mind and a conformity of your mind to what's outside, which we call truth. Uh, rather, mm -hmm. it's a question of taking something that's in us and imposing it on what's outside. And for that reason, that we call it subjectivism sometimes because sure. it depends on the subject, the one who knows. Uh, that's where the name comes from, subjectivism anyway. So in, okay. in some sense, these positions are all going to be saying that truth and, and our understanding of things in some way depends upon man himself and, and okay. is not simply what's outside of him being received inside of him. And, and that's why what I want to say here, and you know, if, for those of who are listening so far, if you're, if you're already confused, don't worry, we'll back up and, and explain this step by step. But I, I think you can already begin to see a connection with some of the modern issues because, for example, religion is going to become, you know, for a modernist and for a lot of people we see today, religion is going to become a question of, of what man does and what man imposes on what's outside of himself. Religion is coming from something in me, first of all, and it dictates the way I interact with the world, but not the other way around. Religion is not something that God gives me and expects me to follow. It's something that comes from inside me. Uh, so each man then is going to have his own religious experience. And, you know, who am I to, to, to decide that your religious experience, experience is somehow invalid? It's coming from inside you. I can't judge that. So we, we see how this is going to eventually lead to some of these other ideas. Uh, okay. But anyway, maybe we should slow down a little bit, go back, back up and... Talk about the beginning. So sure, I, I was going to say, sounds like we wrapped it up. Great, we're done in ten minutes. Thanks, Father. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> if you. I think if you kind of get that, that's what we just we're said. Right. Basically, all we're saying, but we're going to try to trace that line of thought through, through these few different positions to see how it kind of expands and takes hold. I, I do want to say also that in some sense here, because we have to, we're we're. Uh, oversimplifying in the sense of there's certainly more we can say here. We can go into a lot more detail, but sure. that's not, it's not possible in this format. And it's, it's not entirely necessary. I think we can, we can get a grasp of what's going on uh, already by, by looking at things in this way. Okay. That makes sense. So anyway, I, I'd like, we can begin with this, just this first position, which we call nominalism. And just to give a little bit of a background here. So, the it was a position a system of thought that was primarily championed by a man called William of Ockham and he lived in the in the latter part of the 13th century and into the 14th century he is uh, sometimes known for what is mentioned in science Ockham's razor I was going to ask if that was the same guy same guy yeah 
Okay. Occam's razor is uh, the statement that we should not explain something with more principles than we need to explain it fully. And in fact, so although they call it Occam's razor, it was, it was an understood principle in searching for knowledge that was cited uh, well before Occam himself, but he kind of coined this, uh, this particular expression of it, I guess you could say. And I think, so I think people today could refer to it as, as sometimes the simplest explanation is the true one. I mean, that's basically what it boils down to. Yes, exactly, exactly. Right. Sorry, that was kind of a, a sidebar tangent, but go ahead. No, if, if, it, helps, if it helps people make a connection, that's, that's good. No. Um, so, his, so it's the position that we're examining right now. It, it, it receives this name nominalism, which actually comes from the Latin word uh, nomen, which just means a name. And we'll see in a minute why it gets that name. So it's just called like nameism or nominalism. Okay. Uh, to, to understand it, to understand the position which they're stating, I'm, I'm going to try to take an example here to explain. So if I point to you and I say, you are a human being, and then I point to myself and I say, I am a human being, there we have, we have two sentences and the same phrase, human being, or if you want, simply man, uh, is being said of two different things. How is that possible? How is it possible that we call the two different things by the same name? And there are kind of multiple answers to this question. And at first, it seems like a deceptively simple question. Sort of says, well, why would you ever wonder about that? But in fact, philosophers through the ages have been arguing about this because it, it sheds some light about, first of all, how our mind works, but, but more importantly, about reality. So I'm going to give the answer that St. Thomas Aquinas gives first, and he gives an answer that follows uh, Aristotle's own answer, so an Aristotelian philosophy. Um, so first of all, both you uh, and I have something which is the same. And we call that thing that we have that's the same, we call it a nature or an essence. And in fact, we use this word nature in this way, even in com common parlance, when we're just speaking, when we're just chatting with people. So a couple of examples I came up with are, you know, oh, that's just a cat's nature. Well, that's just his nature. That's what he does. Or dogs will be dogs. Uh, why will dogs be dogs? Well, because they, they all have this nature. They all have this same thing that's a, that's a part of themselves. So this, this shared nature in both of us, uh, we call the nature of man. And it's in virtue of this shared nature that each of us has that I use the same name of both of us. So I call you a human being and I call myself a human being in virtue of that thing which we possess, which we call my nature, your nature. And when my mind tries to know reality, this is what the mind first does. The mind first grasps and understands what it is that, are, that is common among different things. So when you're a, a little child and you're growing up and you see the first dog, you, you don't know what it is. You say, you know, daddy or mommy, what is that? 
And that question, what it is, you're asking for the nature of that. And they tell you the name of it. Okay, it's a dog. Then you start seeing other creatures. They have the same characteristics, the same behavior. And your mind grasps that there's something common in all of them and gives that a name, dog or cat or what have you. So this is, this is the answer of St. Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle to this question in brief, which is, why do we use the same word to describe both of us? Because we both have something that's in some way the same. You possess something that I also possess. Okay. Now, nominalism comes in precisely because it tries to give an alternate and a different answer to this question. And they try to give a different explanation then of what's happening when I use the same name or the same phrase to describe you and to describe me. Okay. So nominalism begins with the claim by saying, well, there's actually no nature that is common between you and me. You and I are merely individuals. So either there's nothing common in us or I can't know that there is anything common. You are a completely separate and distinct individual. I'm a completely separate and distinct individual. We each have our own individual characteristics. If there happen to be similarities in the way that we act or talk or whatever, the individual is, is just an individual unto himself. So therefore, what, are they, what am I doing when I call you a human being and when I call myself a human being? Well, a nominalist would say, I'm simply imposing a name on you and on me, the same name, for the sake of convenience. I happen to notice that you do some things similarly to the way I do things, and therefore, we, well, I call us both by the same name, and that's the end of that. So for a nominalist, the mind is uh, not receiving something from reality that it sees in reality is similar or is the same in many individuals. It's rather imposing something on on what is outside of it, because it can't finally know what is outside of it. And so as a further result, then I can't ascribe attributes to, to things themselves in virtue of some common nature that they have. So what I mean by that is, you know, for St. Thomas Aquinas or for Aristotle, we would say something like, well, to be a man is to be rational. And Therefore, you, everything that's rational has to be ruled by his reason. And to be ruled by our reason, by our mind, is a, is a demand of our very nature. So if in some way I decide not to be ruled by my reason, but let's say to be ruled by my emotions simply, um, well, uh, that's, that's unnatural in some way. It's in some way against my nature. But a nominalist would, would reject that statement as being, at best, unknowable. And so if some men rule themselves by their reason, it says nothing about a common nature that they may possess or that they may share with other individuals. That's just the way they act, and if I want to give a name to it, I can. But finally, I don't know uh, what is in them that they might share with others. So, so a nominalist is, is more or less someone who would say that there are things that we cannot know, um, even down to the very basic things of what is the nature of a man. Right. And, and since we can't know it, I cannot ascribe any sort of uh, meaning to it that would be universal, that would be uh, the same 
for, for you, father, or for me, or for the guy in the next room, it would be, it's, we, we each have to act according to our own ways. I mean, if I'm, I'm probably skipping ahead a few chapters here, but I'm, I'm kind of thinking as you're talking and my, my mental, my mental capacity for going down a rabbit hole is really being stretched here because there's a, there's a whole rabbit hole you can go down with this. Exactly. And, and I think that, you know, at first, uh, a position like this is posed as a, as an answer to a, to a question which seems a little perhaps esoteric, a bit, a sure. bit we might say philosophical, but as soon as you adopt the position, other men down, down in history are going to start to take it to its logical conclusions. And when you start to take it to its logical conclusions, it's precisely what you said. It's a rabbit hole that goes very, very far and very deep. And in some sense, then, that's why you know, we always come back to something in philosophy as a kind of starting point for right. even for revolution, because the way men think affects the way they act. And so eventually right. this, this enters, uh, we might say it, it creates a custom or a habit of thinking in men. And, and actually that's a point that perhaps I should have mentioned earlier is that when it's, it's when men start to become accustomed to this way of thinking that you start to see the consequences getting drawn out more and more. Because perhaps uh, William of Ockham either didn't see all the consequences or he was surrounded by a society that didn't, wasn't based on his own system of thought, but based on a, quite another one. But as soon as you begin to have this getting some traction, then all of a sudden now you have a, a custom and men are, it's just, quote, obvious to them that this must be the case. You know, I can't well, tell what's going on inside you. I, I just don't know. And it's, and it's interesting. I mean, this is, this is, would be a fun debate to have philosophically, uh, you know, in a vacuum, but I, I think you, you were alluding to this. If, if enough people around you start to believe in the same exact thing, uh-oh, there's, there's going to be some chaos happening. Um, you know, it's, it's a common phrase today. Ideas are powerful. Uh, and that's why the church has often said ideas can be dangerous. Um, yeah. Not because the church wants to quash people thinking, but this is exactly what happens. You start to have some of these, these concepts, these philosophical concepts, and enough people start to believe in it, where's, where does the rabbit hole end, to keep using that same analogy? Right, right, that's exactly right. And, and, and so I think, I think as an immediately, immediately weak with the benefit of you know, hindsight, we can see some, some seeds that are planted here, uh, uh, seeds of what we might call a subjectivism or at least a, a break of our mind from reality, from what we would say is truth. So truth is no longer going to be a question of, again, my mind receiving something from outside. So seeing and grasping a, a nature that's common among many individuals, rather it's going to be a question of my mind imposing something on, on the outside, in this case, just a name, right? But I say, okay, I call you dog and that dog because, well, you kind of look similar, but in terms of whether you actually are, I don't know. And that, but you see that the, the initial flip has happened in some sense, we've, we've been broken off from reality and in some way then our, our truth is gonna to be to impose these names on things. Uh, maybe at the beginning for the sake of convenience, but eventually as really the only way we can make any progress in, in our thinking. And that's going to be, that's going to lead to some drastic consequences for sure. Sure. Because truth is then infinitely changeable. It doesn't matter. Okay. There's no, there is no truth. Right. right. There, there is, there is nothing objective about truth. Right. Okay. 
So I think from here we can we can kind of pivot and, and transition, fast forward the, the clock a little bit to Luther. But I want to okay. I want to mention one very important connection between nominalism and Luther's own thought, and that is that nominalism as a philosophical position greatly influenced uh, the Augustinians, so the the, the monks. Um, but they were the theological teachers of Martin Luther. So uh, Luther was an Augustinian monk. So this tradition of thought was, was in the, the, the monastery in some sense, which, which he joined. Um, and, so, and Father, just, just to ask a quick question on this, and, I don't, and we, haven't, we haven't talked about this, and it's not in kind of the, the layout that we're talking about, but at the time, did the church see this as, did the popes or, or any of the other... Um, bishops, cardinals, did they see this as a problem? Did they see this as an error? Because you say this nominalism kind of got into the Augustinian order. That seems a, a bit of a surprise to me that something that would be so, I mean, it's not heretical, but it's wrong. It's not correct. Um, it seems odd to me that it could kind of seep into a whole religious order so easily, so to speak. Well, so you have to remember a little bit of the context here, which was this is a discussion among philosophers about okay how we think about things and how we understand reality. And I think precisely it, it remained there for a while. You know, it, it was purely academic. Yes, right, exactly. Okay. And I don't, so the church is not going to declare on that except when it starts to touch her doctrine. Got it. It's going to, especially in Luther, but for other reasons also, not just nominalism. But Okay, that makes sense. Well, sorry to, sorry to interrupt you, but uh, no, so no. You, you were saying um, this is getting into the Augustinian order and then that's going to be influencing Luther and, I'm assuming, I, I, I don't know what you're going to say, but I'm assuming he's going to take it and run with it. Spoiler yeah, alert. <laughs> that, that will, now, it's not the only thing that he's going to take and run with, but it's going to okay. be, uh, a lot's going to depend upon um, other things that are going on in, in Luther's life. And, and I think that's actually where we have to begin with, with Martin Luther. Okay. So um, Jacques Maritain, he writes a book called uh, Three Reformers, and he one of the reformers he looks at is Martin Luther. And he says in that book that, you know, every, every, whenever we look at an heresiarch, so someone who starts a heresy that influences very many people, uh, okay. usually the whole life of the person depends upon the error he professes. So he professes an error, and then instead of retracting the error, he conforms his whole life to the error in some way. And that's very true, but as Maritain points out, it's, it's the opposite way around with Martin Luther. Instead, we find Luther's own life and problems make the error. Let's say they are the source of his error. And for that reason, so in, in some sense, he conforms his thinking to his own life, right? And, okay. and therefore, he makes a mistake and a, and a grievous mistake. But that's why I think it's necessary to give a few very brief notes of about Luther's own life, because you have to understand what he was thinking when he came up with this, uh, his own system and his, and his own heresy. Okay. Uh, so we mentioned already he entered religious life as an Augustinian monk. Uh, at the beginning of his, of his monastic life, he was, he was very fervent, but he was always worried and anxious. He was very agitated. And in fact, his decision to enter religious life came uh, when he was caught in a thunderstorm. And, you know, he, because he was saved by God from, from any harm from this thunderstorm, he decided on the spur of the moment 
to enter religious life. And I think that kind of gives you a, a hint about Luther's own uh, temperament, which is going to be something feverish, a little bit uh, sensitive, really, really uh, emotional in some way, not, not to abuse those words, but there's something there, you know. And mm -hmm. in his monastic life, then, Luther undergoes a real crisis of scruples. And so mm -hmm. he, he thought incorrectly that he had to somehow uh, feel or know that he was really in the state of grace. And so he, when he has these scruples, which anytime a scruple comes up, it's a question of, okay, usually the classic is I'm wondering whether or not what I'm doing is sinful. So, and I, I wonder that about everything. I keep asking, okay, maybe I'm sinning, maybe I'm not. Or I do an action and then I, then I think afterwards, oh my goodness, was that a sin? Or a temptation arises, a thought arises in my mind, and I think, did I consent to the thought? Did I not consent to the thought? This is kind of the classic scruples. So it seems Luther underwent this, and to try to escape from scruples, he tried to find some kind of assurance for himself that he was actually okay. Now, as a side note on a spiritual level, and hopefully in the midst of all this philosophy, some, some spiritual fruit can come from this, but sure. many, many spiritual authors, many saints, they, they say, and they say very clearly that the only way out of the trial of scruples is to give our ready and complete obedience to someone outside of us, to, to a confessor, to a spiritual director, what have you. And it's okay. interesting that Luther essentially tries to answer the problem of scruples by the opposite movement, and it's, it's a complete disaster. So precisely by rejecting authority outside of himself. So anyway, uh, because of this trial of scruples, Luther is constantly fe feeling discouraged, and he, he simply cannot satisfy his own conscience. He can't escape from this constant tension, this constant fear of his own salvation, so on and so forth. And so it's precisely in this state of soul that Luther's ideas and thoughts uh, are born. And I think that background is very important to understand how could a man say some of the things that Luther says. And well, in some sense, he, was, he wasn't well. He was, he was uh, sick with the disease of scruples in some way. Sure. So, so we have to keep that in mind when we, when we look at Luther's system. So in, in a sense, it almost makes him a little bit more sympathetic. I mean, I'm not... I'm not trying to excuse the heresy and, and the whole schism thing, uh, but, uh, but in a sense, I mean, you do feel, I mean, we've, we've, most of us Catholics have dealt with periods of scruples or, or feelings like that. So it is a, it is a despondent place to be in spiritually. Yes. Yes. There's no doubt about it. And I think there, obviously we can, we can try to say as much as we can with the saints, you know, there, but for the grace of God go I. Sure if we are preserved from these errors, in some sense, it's thanks be to God, thanks be to his grace. Certainly. Um, at the same time, you know, as you said, we have to condemn what is the error in thought, and we're going to do that. But I would say conditions and gives rise to the thought that the thoughts that he comes up with. Uh, so right. it's, it's, we have not enough time, I think, to go through everything in detail about Protestantism. It would take much longer than we have time for. But I'm going to confine myself to just two points about Luther's thought. The first is, in a certain sense, what I would call the foundational principle for Luther and the foundational principle for Protestantism. And then secondly, on account of that foundational principle, kind of the launching point, 
is that foundational principle. On account of that, second point is uh, one of the really the main characteristics of Luther's position of his, uh, the religion, so to speak, that he, that he starts here. And so we're going to begin with that first point. What is, what's this foundational principle? Well, so Luther, again, he's faced with his own inability to escape, to, to get out of what he saw as evil. He seemed to, every which way he turned, he seemed to be committing evil. And so since he can't escape it, he tries to find a system of thinking that will at least soothe him, release some of the tension. And if we could put his reasoning into words, this is perhaps an oversimplification, but we could say something like this, you know, Luther's thinking, well, if something is evil in me and I can't overcome it by myself, that must mean that I am evil myself, my, by nature. It's, I can't help it. I'm just evil. And if this is so, then everything in me is everything, everybody like me as well, uh, must be intrinsically evil. And accordingly, the, the only thing that I can do is to accept myself as I am, as somebody who is incapable of doing any good, and is only capable of committing evil. And from that kind of reasoning process, if you want, again, a bit oversimplified, the idea comes out that, well, uh, because of original sin, because of what Adam has done, the uh, human beings are fundamentally corrupted. The, if we were to express ourselves in, in the terms of nature and essence and that kind of thing, we would say Adam's sin uh, irreparably destroyed the goodness of human nature. And accordingly, man is inherently in himself uh, essentially evil. And, well, that's a very bleak picture, obviously. And right, just right. to parenthetically mention the, the Catholic position, we would say uh, original sin does not destroy man's nature, but it wounds it. So all of right. us inherent, in, excuse me, inherit these wounds of original sin, but our nature is not destroyed. And that means that, for example, my intellect and my will and all these powers that I have they're still directed towards the true and the good, but it's hard for me to get there because of the wounds. But that's not what Luther's saying. Luther's saying the opposite. He's saying everything you do is evil. By the very fact that you do it, it's evil. Right. And so now this puts us in a bad position with regard to salvation because, I mean, how are we going to find salvation now? Right, because what's the point, essentially? Right. If we're, if we're all just so evil, well, I mean, might as well give up now. Um, right, right. And in a certain sense, that aspect is the despair of the scrupulous, right? I can never right. do good. That's, we see right. where it comes from. Um, so Luther wants to find some way of being saved. He, he, he knows that men can be saved. And so he comes up with a further idea that, well, God can only save man not by healing his nature because it's irreparably destroyed, but simply by covering this intrinsic corruption with the justice of Christ. So God looks at us and he doesn't see us, he sees Christ instead, which is funny because it's a phrase that we use, you know, we want God to look at us and see Christ, but we hold, again, as Catholics, to the, the uh, that grace really does heal our nature, that grace really does perfect us, 
But Luther's not saying that. Luther's saying we're a, a mass of corruption and God covers that with Christ. And so he no longer sees the corruption. But underneath, we're still corrupt. So okay. how, how is man saved, according to Luther? Well, there's kind of a twofold movement, if you want. First, man has to recognize his own radical inability to do anything good, that he can only produce evil. So in some sense, man has to despair about himself. We could say it that way. But secondly, and this is the famous statement, man must believe and have confidence that the blood of Christ will save us, will save him, uh, despite the fact that we are and we remain essentially evil. And there's something that, there's a statement of Luther that I don't know how many people know it. I, I think it's fairly well known, but it's really a horrific statement, but it sums up these two points very well. And that is this statement, you know, sin boldly, but believe still more boldly. And this is something that Luther said, go out and sin and sin boldly. Do all the evil you can imagine. Just make sure that you believe even more boldly than that, and then you will be saved. So it's, it's a horrific statement because it really right. says, you know, you have a license to sin. And as long right. as you believe, as long as you have confidence in Christ, well, it's not going to matter. And it, now we're very far, obviously, from the Catholic position. On, on one hand, it seems totally antithetical for someone who has serious scruples to say, go out and sin. But as I think about it more, it starts to make all the sense in the world because I have, I have these scruples. I can't, I can't overcome them. So fine. I, this is the way God made me the devil. I mean, this is kind of like the devil made me do it. I mean, it's, it's taking all to use a, a 2020 term It's taking all of our agency out of it. It's, we yes. have no ability to do anything. Therefore let's just act like rational animals. That's it. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's it. Wow. And not even, not even rational, right? <laughs> At some well, time. yeah, that's true. Yeah. Some of the temptations, but the whole point is, we can see how this comes from scrupulosity because one of the temptations that, that the devil certainly plays with, with somebody who has scruples is, well, look, since it doesn't matter what you do and no matter what you do, you seem to be sinning. You might as well do everything, right? That's a, that's a, a game the devil plays. And certainly that's basically what Luther's saying. It doesn't matter what you do. So you might as well do everything. Just make sure that you believe that Christ is going to cover you over at the end of the day. Um, so th- this is this is Luther's background. This is how it how he gets to where he is. But yeah. we started out talking about nominalism. How do those two things then connect, Father? Right. Exactly. So we have to we have to remember that um, Luther was trained in the in the nominalist position. He was instructed in this tradition of of thought of nominalism. So okay. this is going to give him uh, already as a background a kind of distrust of human reason and therefore reason's ability to attain to a truth uh, and a reality that's outside of itself. And for that, for Luther, that plays right into his thought because he says, well, that makes sense. If I'm inherently evil, I can't come to know the truth by myself. I can't know what's outside of me in any way. And so Luther's going to take this another step, of course, and he's going to say, not only can reason not know the truth, but Reason is opposed to your faith. Why? Because, Uh again, reason, again, cannot attain the reality outside of you. The only thing that can attain to the reality is this 
faith in Christ, this confidence that I have in Christ. That's the only thing that's going to save you. Everything else that you do is evil. And so, in fact, we have to not only ignore reason, but we have to despise it. We have to say it's directly opposed to faith. And he says that reason is directly opposed to faith. So I'm quoting now. So in believers, in people who believe, it should be killed and buried. And not to be too graphic here, but this is a quotation. She, reason, is the whore of the devil. So it, hmm. a lot of people don't realize Luther went that far, but he went that far and further still, you know. And I think right. there's, his position here has been moderated to some extent by, by subsequent Protestants, but these ideas sort of entered into men's minds and started to shape them for centuries. So for Luther, again, the act of faith... Uh, and even to call it an act is a little bit of a contradiction, but Luther's act, faith is not an act of reason, which we would say as Catholics would say, my faith is my belief. I, I believe the truths and I know the truths by my mind. But Luther says, no, no, it's not that. It's rather an act of your will, or if we're going to call a spade a spade, really an act of your feelings. Uh, I have mm-hmm. to feel that I'm saved by Christ's blood, no matter what I do. And this is the most important thing. Religion then becomes something entirely interior, not exterior at all. I've really now broken uh, the connection between reality on the one hand and, and, and religion. Religion is something that gets trapped inside and stays inside me. That's the only thing I can know about it. And if I can insert a kind of uh, autobiographical note here, I've had a number of discussions with people on an airplane, uh, you know, wherever. And we always kind of, at least four of these discussions have followed the same general trend, which is, um, do you believe in an objective truth? And I usually give an example from uh, something that is scientific, like is water made of hydrogen and oxygen? Or does fire burn when I put my hand in it? Or something like this. And everybody will agree with that statement. But then when I try to translate it over into religion, and I try to say, well, if I say that Jesus Christ is God and you say he's not God, well, that's a contradiction. One of us is right and one of us is wrong, just like with the water, with the fire. They, they stop and they can't, their mind can't go to that level. They don't want to see that in religion. And I think there you have Luther's idea. Uh, religion is something interior. So if I feel this way, that's true for me. And if you feel the other way, that's true for you. Luther didn't say that. Uh, he was even a bit more consistent than that. But that's where we are right now with, with a, a total subjectivism of religion. You want to say Jesus Christ is God? Go for it. it. makes you feel better. I'm happy for you. But that's about where it ends. So religion becomes entirely interior. And, and to be clear, there is such a thing as subjectivity. I mean, this yes. room could be warm to me or cold to you, and we could both yes. be right because that is how we literally feel. Religion is not one of those things. Uh, theology is not one of those things. It's, it's, not a, it's not a matter of opinion. No, and even if we, even your example there, like, is that a true subjectivism? So it's warm to you and cold to me. There, each of us is describing what's true, a, a sense impression. But uh, then again, I mean we can put a thermometer in the room and determine the temperature and we can see, well, you know, it feels cold to me because, or warm to you because one of us is sick. And, and so ultimately that's, 
you have to be careful with those ide- those uh, examples because okay. finally there is an objectivity, right? Even if we disagree about our impressions of things, but that's certainly the case with religion is that Jesus Christ is either God or he's not God and he can't be both. So it's, right. it's not possible. So, right. but once we, once we break uh, reality from religion or what's outside from religion and religion becomes just this, feeling I have that I'm saved, I'm convinced that I'm saved, uh, then anything goes as far as religion is concerned. Hmm. So, so that, that basically for Luther is that that's what he says, the sola fide. So by, you are saved by faith alone. Um, well, because you're entirely corrupt. And so all you can do is trust that God will cover your corruption and that's what, that's what Luther really means by the, the sola fide. You're, you're saved by faith alone. Uh, and that, just one other note about that, it's, uh, I think as a position, it's also very psychologically destructive of people because, you know, how do I know that I've made <laughs> that act of confidence or faith? First of all, if it's an act, it comes from me, and then it's evil by Luther's own statement. But also, once I make it, I mean, then I'm saved. But how do I know that I make it? Because I can't look at anything outside of myself because everything outside, I'm broken with that. So whereas a Catholic has confession, for example, goes to confession and says, here are my sins. And the priest says, your sins are forgiven. So the Catholic hears something that's outside of himself and says, okay, that's something I can rest on. I can rest on the words of the priest. God has promised, if the priest says these words, then I am forgiven. But the Protestant has no such assurance. He has to just go back and try to summon up those feelings again and, and, and right. try to really feel that he's been, that he's been saved. And that's just... And for someone, yeah, for someone who's, who's very scrupulous, that seems like a disaster. Oh, my goodness. It's, 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 it's a horror for them. Right. And, and so they, they have nothing outside themselves to rely on. So they're, they're stuck inside themselves and just spinning around themselves. This, this is a consequence, I think, of Luther's idea here. Hmm. So, so that, was, that was kind of the first thing that I wanted to mention. And then very briefly, it's not necessary to go into a lot more detail here, but a, a main characteristic that arises as regards Protestantism and really, really marks it, not just Luther's Protestantism, but all the other, um, all the other various flavors of Protestantism that come after him, is uh, what we might call private judgment. So... Um, Luther has rejected reason as his guide. He's reduced religion, his interior act. And what follows from this then is that everything that is religious um, has to be in some way submitted to this interior act, this judgment, right? So everything's got to be submitted to my own private judgment about whether I accept it for me or not. Because if it's not submitted to that, then it's, it's evil. It's, it's false in some way. Mm-hmm. And so the only one who can tell me anything about my relationship with Christ is me, myself, right. my own experience. Any external authority cannot tell me finally what I have to believe or what I have to do, because that would in some way go against, again, this internal act that I need to make in order to be saved. So this, this position is even more destructive in some sense than the first, although it flows from the first, because for one thing, it destroys the Catholic understanding of the rule of faith. So what do I have to believe to be saved? 
what the Catholic Church tells me to believe. So there's an authority outside of myself which finally determines what I believe and what I don't have to believe. That's for the very simply stated, that's what a Catholic thinks. And just to give you an example of how early this goes back, we've got St. Augustine who says that he would not believe scripture unless the authority of the church compelled him. And he's saying the same thing. I don't accept scripture except the church tells me to accept it. So I do. And that, that restores the order. There's something outside of man, an authority outside of man, which again, imposes something on him that he has to conform to. Same relation again with reality and man. I have to accept what's outside me. Otherwise I, I don't have the truth and the same idea for authority. But again, with Luther's position, we do away with anything outside of man. And instead the rule of faith is going to be my own judgment. Everything is accepted or denied based on an appeal to what's going on inside of me. And this Luther states in so many words, so this is another quote from him. So he rejects the book of the apocalypse. He says we should, we should take it out of scripture. And his reason is, is the following. I feel an aversion to it. This is sufficient reason for rejecting it. And it, hmm. it's just so striking. It's just, I don't like it, so I reject it. But it's basically what it comes down to. That's a, that's a very consistent statement from Luther after what he has said before. Um, and it, it's not hard to see that obviously then this private judgment, uh, if everything is submitted in that way, then every man is going to become a whole religious right. sect unto himself. And if so, Luther can do it, I can do it too. I can, I can reject Genesis if I don't like it. Exactly, exactly. And in fact, I, I, I think it was, I'm going to go out on a limb here because I don't remember precisely, but I believe it was the Anabaptist who wrote to Luther, who was trying to correct them about what they were saying. And they said to him, um, who are you, Pope of Wittenberg? You know, Luther was in Wittenberg. So they said, mm -hmm. you're just as bad as the Pope. You're trying to tell us what to believe. Right. But by your own principle, we determine what we, what we think. Right. Um, and so a lot of people you will mention, you know, and Catholics too, in an apologetic discussion, look how many Protestant sects there are. But what I want to say is what's surprising is not the number of them, but that there aren't more. <laughs> because yeah. every, every Protestant could become his own, his own set of beliefs, you know. And, right. and in general, when you speak to people who identify themselves as Protestants, they're very unclear with what they believe. And again, the only thing they're absolutely certain about is that they're saved because they've accepted Jesus Christ as their savior. That's really the only thing they're certain about. Um, if you push them on their position of thought, they, they sort of, I don't know, many of them get confused and don't know what they believe. So, so I think, I think from this look, which was just, you know, a cursory one, we can see that, that the break from nominalism, that the nominalism broke breaking from reality is, is taken still further with Luther because um, nominalism was claiming, again, that man imposes something of himself on reality. I give things a name because I see some kind of similarity there. But Luther is going to take this into matters of religion and in, in, in no uncertain fashion. For him, all true religion is going to be just an internal experience in some way. And so every man has to subject everything coming from outside of himself to the text of his own judgment. So 
I think that that sets us up well. It brings us brings us further. And you know, next time I think because we're we're maybe running low on time now, we can right. look at one more one more person who's going to take this still further. Really develop a philosophical system around Luther's idea of religion, and that's going to be Immanuel Kant, so the German the German philosopher. And just to kind of, and I know we're going to be talking about this, and we're going to be doing this one uh, next week. But uh, Immanuel Kant, he's he's shortly after Luther, like in the next hundred years or so, or yeah. So he's actually coming in the 18th century, so in okay. the 1700s, and he's going to be raised in um in a Pietist family. So the the Pietism was a form of Lutheranism, which okay. which itself was really a kind of toned down version of Luther's thought, but there's a direct connection there in a sense. Immanuel Kant's going to be a Protestant, but he's going to try to so, sort of, in some sense, enshrine Luther's own thought in a philosophically consistent system. Since Luther never tried to, to think philosophically about things, he just was making statements about religion. But right, so he's going, to, right. he's going to come a bit later, but Kant is going to be more immediately the, the predecessor of especially the era of liberalism and then the era of modernism. But okay. we've at least begun to trace the evolution of that thought, you know, over two time periods. Um, Certainly. Well, well, Father, thank you very much for that, uh, for that intro into, you know, where, where we started. Um, and it is, you know, it is reassuring to look back at least at the church at the time. They, they took a stand immediately. You know, you look at the council of Trent, and taking a stand right. and, and, and fighting against these errors, fighting against these heresies. Um, sad that we don't have that same reaction today to a lot of the heresies, but uh, at least it was there and, and we can hang our hat on that. And there's a lot of good that came out of the Council of Trent, even if it took a heresy to get there, really. Right, exactly. And that, that it brings up one, one final point that I'll make here too, and that is that because it, it pertains very much to the crisis of today also, and it's in the words of a one, one author um, who's a, writing a spiritual book, but he mentions, he says, you know, why is it that the church is so strict on doctrine? Why does she have to be so careful about what she says and what we believe? And he makes this comparison, again, of the, of the church to, to a ship, to a boat. He says, well, she's, this, she's the ark of salvation. She's a boat but she's on a stormy sea. You know, we're, we're, we're surrounded by men who have original sin, who are, we can become deluded. The devil is not tiring and attacking and that kind of thing. So she's on a stormy sea. Any little chink, any little opening that in her hull, any, any doctrine that she doesn't affirm or that she lets slide by is going to be so much water is going to get into the boat. It's going to sink right. the ship. And that's why I think the church's reaction to Luther was so strong, saying, no, we have to condemn these in no uncertain terms because these statements will endanger men's salvation. And we just wish that we saw that today in the same way because right. the, the, the church cannot take water. She can't. She is the ark of salvation. She's the only one. So she has to defend herself. She has to defend her doctrine. That's her, that's her prerogative, her right, and her duty to do so. Yeah, very interesting. Well, Father, thank you again so much for the time. And uh, you're on uh, you're on uh, mission uh, right now. You're normally at the seminary, but you're uh, do you do the yes. Washington D.C. mission or actually the Richmond, Virginia mission? So our Lady Richmond, of Virginia. Fatima Church. I forgot to mention at the beginning that was just a recent thing. In the last months, I've taken over the mission here, 
And so um, we're, we're on our first Friday, first Saturday weekend, of course, now. So, uh, so I'm here already. All right, very good. Well, we look forward to talking to you uh, next week then about, the, uh, about uh, Emmanuel Kant and, and diving good. in a little bit deeper and uh, going through all this. Thank you for your time, Father. Great. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for listening to and watching episode two of our Crisis in the Church series here on the SSPX podcast. We're planning on releasing a new episode every week. Next Thursday, we'll speak with Father Wiseman again about Immanuel Kant and how there was a definite break from reality in his theories. Then in two weeks, we're going to have Father Stephen Reuter join us for a two-part discussion on liberalism. Then coming up in the next four to six weeks, we'll chat with Father Jonathan Loop, Father Paul Robinson, and Father Paul Isaac Franks. If you have a question on the topic of the crisis, please feel free to ask it at sspxpodcast.com slash crisis, and we'll do our best to have it answered during the appropriate episode. And we could definitely use your support. Please share this episode with someone who you think might enjoy it. And if you have the ability to set up a small recurring donation of 5 or 10 or $20 on sspxpodcast.com, it would help us immensely to complete this crisis in the church project. Until next week. Thank you for listening, and God bless you.